This morning, we're uh, continuing our study in the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we're in Matthew chapter 5, looking at you are the only salt and light for this dark world. You're the only salt and light. You are God's plan A. He does not have a plan B. When Jesus decided he wanted to radically change the eternal destiny of people, he chose you and I to be active participants in that process. Father, I pray this morning that even though our culture is very different than the culture in which Christ walked on the earth, I pray that we would understand what Jesus was saying in its historical setting and in its application to us today. I pray that we would not feel guilt-tripped, but I pray that we would feel guilty if we are not doing what we should be doing. I pray that you would stir our hearts, convict us, challenge us, encourage us for your honor and your glory. May we be followers of your mission, obedient to your word, empowered by your spirit. In Jesus' blessed name we pray, amen. Our culture is very different than the culture in which Jesus walked on the earth. So when we read in Matthew chapter 5, we read it from a Western mindset, and we read it from a current mindset. We have to go back to a Middle Eastern mindset, and we have to go back a couple thousand years of human history. So, in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 13, when he says, You are the salt of the earth. What do you think of when you you think of a little salt shaker? That's not what Jesus was thinking of. Then when Jesus continued in verse 12, he said, If the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Verse 14, he says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all that are in the house. So Jesus is talking about light. And when you think of, hey, turn on the lights, do you think light the wick so that it burns brightly? Maybe if you're out camping, probably not even that. Now you have your uh, electric light. I even had an electric lantern. It looked just like the old Coleman lantern, you know, where you have to get it out and you pump like crazy to get it, and then you light it, and that's what we had when I was a kid. And I bought an electric one that looked just like that. And when I would go to camp when when we were in tents, I would hang that in my tent, and that would light up the area. But usually you think of lights like this. I mean, we have spotlights. We have projector lights. They didn't have that around in Jesus' day. Verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, this is really important. We have a hermeneutic. I have one, and you have one. So if I asked you, what's your hermeneutic, what would you say? Excuse me, Pastor, I've got to go get a drink. What were you saying, Jeff? 102. All right, here's what a hermeneutic is, the perspective you have when you study the Bible. The Bible study method that you use 
is a hermeneutic. And so when you're reading Scripture, you're reading it from a certain perspective. And so here's what we do for our church. We study the Scripture through a normative, literal, grammatical, historical, contextual, and dispensational method of interpretation or hermeneutic in order to accurately understand the text and discern the intent of each passage. Very briefly, the normative literal. So, when Jesus is saying, you are the light of the world, do you think that means Jesus is going to let you glow in the dark so people can see that you're really his? Is there going to be this aura about you glowing behind you as you speak. No, we look at it from a normative, literal interpretation. And grammatical, it's written in words. No, it wasn't written in English. It was written in this part, was written in Greek. And we can translate that into English. And we can look at the the words. And so we have nouns, and we have verbs, and we have adjectives, and we have adverbs. We have a subject, and we have action. And so we understand that when we're reading. You don't open the Bible and say, Oh, I wonder what that really means. You know how to find out what it really means? You read it. And you read it grammatically. And then uh, historical. Uh, This was written in a different culture, in a different mindset. Some of the questions that we ask historically are, what did it mean when it was written? This is theologically what's called the authorial intent. What did the author mean when they wrote this? Have, Have you ever been around people that don't interpret the Bible this way? Uh, I got a call from a lady when I was pastoring in another community before I came here. And, and she called me on the phone and she said uh, that she quoted the scripture. And she said, this was the, the commission that God has given her. And this is her mission and her ministry. And so our church needed to have her come and preach for us because she had this ministry from God. I said, that's interesting, because those very verses that you just said, God told you, applied to you, Jesus said they applied to him. When Jesus was on the earth, he read those scriptures in the synagogue, and he said, this day is the scripture fulfilled in your sight. Jesus said, that was about him. And so I told her we wanted no part of her coming and being around our church. Well, she said we would really suffer, and oh, we did. We grew. But uh, listen, people have all kinds of weird ideas. You, can't, you can have a verse that could be a verse that means a lot to you, right? How many of you have a verse that means a lot to you? Yeah, there's, I have changed verses over the years at different circumstances, but there are verses that mean a lot to me. But that is not God's verse in Revelation to Terry Green. Okay? The Bible was not written to you, but it was written for you. So we look at it historically. What was the authorial intent? And how did the people who read it the first time, 
the initial recipients, how did they understand it? How can I apply that to my life today? We'll get into contextual in just a minute, but that means verses aren't isolated. They're connected to the verses before and after, and they're connected to all the other verses all through the Scripture that apply to that subject. I've used this illustration a lot of times. If you only had two verses on prayer, and they were, uh, Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica, pray without ceasing, and then Jesus Later in the Sermon on the Mount, when you uh, pray, go into your closet and shut the door and pray to your Father in secret. If those are the only two verses we had on prayer, what would happen? (laughs) You'd die in your closet. You'd go shut the door in your closet and pray without ceasing. Do you think that's what God intended? No. We look at all the verses on prayer and we get a clear understanding. So what Jesus said is very helpful, but not the only truth that God revealed in Scripture. Now, we also believe the Bible is complete. God gave us his completed revelation. So the Holy Spirit can stir your heart to do certain things, and and that's great. But the Holy Spirit is not going to reveal new truth for God's people through you. We have the completed revelation of Scripture. So he'll reveal things you need to know, He may reveal to you that somebody's struggling, and so you call them or you talk to them. Maybe you're in a store, and you feel the Holy Spirit kind of nudge your heart to say something to that person, and so you do. And the Holy Spirit works through that. But he's not going to reveal new truth for all believers because we have the completed revelation. And... So as we look at Scripture, as we look at this passage of Scripture, we have to look at it historically. You are the salt of the earth. So historically, what Jesus was saying to those people in that day was they understood it because they understood salt differently than we do. Because we understand that salt seasons, right? How many of you sprinkle salt on stuff, right? How many of you buy french fries that are already salted and add salt? I don't know. There's, how many of you sprinkle, sprinkle salt on your potato chips? Oh. I don't either. That's okay. But we know salt seasons, right? I, I still sprinkle salt on vegetables, sometimes on meat, but often on cooked vegetables anyway, not raw ones. But Until refrigerators were invented, how did people preserve meat? They salted it. And so they would salt it, and they would hang it, and they would let it dry out. How many of you have been in one of those uh, rooms where they dry meat? Well, (laughs) Pat and I have. Uh, Maybe some others have. But my great-grandparents had that. They, They got a refrigerator, but for most of their life, they'd hang that meat in that drying room. And... So you'd go, and they'd rub it down with salt, and they'd hang it, and they'd have smoke. And so you'd get smoked and dried meat that would last for a long time. So it was a lot more like beef jerky than it was like biting into a juicy burger. So we don't have that today because we have refrigerators. So for us today, salt is something you can add on if you want or not. But when Jesus said this, and when those people received this, salt was an essential ingredient for life. You needed that salt to restore balance to your body. We 
oversalt sometimes. We use too much. We eat too many chips. But, but they didn't have that issue. Salt was essential for life. So when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, Jesus was not saying, hey, you're the salt of the earth, and you can go out there and be sprinkled a little bit if somebody wants to. Jesus said, you are essential to the ministry that Jesus was doing on planet earth. You are the salt. So salt would keep the meat from spoiling. It would season their meat and their vegetables. And salt was so valuable that sometimes the soldiers were paid in little sacks of salt. That's where we get the phrase, somebody's worth their salt. Get a little salt for their wage. And that was how they were paid. So salt by itself has no effect. You can sit at a table with a salt shaker sitting right there and you are not blessed by the salt. But if you take that salt and you apply it a little in the right measure to suit you, then you're benefited by that salt. Salt has no value unless it comes in contact with something. And so the people who heard this they would have understood that. They would have understood the seasoning part of salt, the preserving part of salt. They would have understood that it's when the salt makes contact with the meat that salt has the benefit of seasoning preserving. But if it doesn't make contact, there's no benefit. So now we try and apply that into our lives. You are the salt of the earth. Then there's two things that God wants us to do by extension, saying this to his disciples in that day, but by extension also to us. One is he wants you to be involved. Involved in our culture. Not just here at church, in our culture out in the community. Now, there are some things he doesn't want you to be involved in, right? There's some evil things out in our community. But there's some good things too. He wants you to be involved in some ways in interacting in the hearts and lives of people on planet Earth. He wants you to be involved. And he not only wants you to be involved, he also wants you to add value, like salt added value. It preserved. So you be engaged and involved. Now, to be honest with you, I have an awkward time talking to women out in the community, when, especially if my wife's not there. Because there are, how many of you have ever heard the phrase, creepy old man? Yeah. How many of you have known somebody like that? Right? So if I walk up and start a conversation, say, say I didn't know Ethel, and I'm just walking, and I said, hi, how are you today? She might be thinking, oh, no, red flag's going off, you know, red alert, picking out her mace, ready to nail me with it. Do you carry mace? I don't know. (laughs) Does she? Oh, my sisters do. My wife doesn't, but my sisters do. Um, I had a situation at Planet Fitness the other day. I was, (laughs) I I decided I was going to talk to these, what I thought were young mother, young daughter, um, but they were working out together, and, and like the older one was really helping the younger one. And, and so I went up and I said, 
you know, I think it's really neat that you work out together and help each other. And, and I said to the one who was still way younger than me, but older than the other one, I said, is she your daughter? She said, she's my sister. I, how many of you guys on saying that think, this is cool, I've got a dialogue going here? <laughs> my brain shut down. It was like panic mode. And I have learned what you say. Are you related? There we go. I'm ready for next time, buddy. But I'll tell you, you know, I felt, I just kind of mumbled something. I left and I thought, I felt so stupid. I, I was, had a, a good intent. I was trying to be friendly and everything. And so I really prayed that God would open another door. And I had a, uh, one of the cards that we have, an invitation to the church. And I wore it an exercise shirt that has a shirt pocket in it. And I stuck that card in there and I just prayed, Lord, give me an opportunity to say something to them. And so I was working out in this one area where there's a little wall. Some of you have been Planet Fitness and I was in the 30 minute circle thing and I was just finishing up in there and ready to go out and do a couple other exercises and they came walking by the wall. And so the walls between us, this was a nice safety barrier. And I said to them, I said, hi. I said, listen, I'm sorry. I said, I just panicked the other day. And I said, I'm not some strange old guy. Well, that's not true, but I'm not some strange old guy. And I said, I'm from Victory Baptist Church. And and here, I just, I think it's cool that you guys work out together. And I just wanted to say so. And, and, you know, we'd love to have you visit Victory. and, And that was the end of it. And I really praise God that I had that opportunity to follow up. And so I'm not just that weird old guy. I'm a weird old guy from Victory. Now, it's different. But, but, but what we can do, because there's awkwardness in our culture, isn't there? It's awkward to witness to somebody because some people think Christians are narrow-minded, hateful, evil people. That's what they think. They don't realize that God's narrow-minded and we're trying to obey God. God said there's certain things that are always sin, no matter what the Supreme Court says. They're sin. And so we try and obey God. But people act like Christians are angry, mean people attacking our culture. And Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. So you can't be that person. Maybe you're uncomfortable with their sin, but you don't attack them. God loves them. Christ died for them. I was reading a book by a Christian, and he went out, and he had lunch with a guy who's a very aggressive campaigner for lifestyle that's not consistent with Scripture. And this believer, at the end of the lunch, he said, listen, you do know God loves you, right? Do you know that? That person had never heard that. But that's part of the message we're supposed to carry out there. Yes, there's a judgment coming. But God loved them so much they can avoid the judgment by repenting and receiving Christ. And so sin that has lost, or salt rather, that has lost its seasoning, it's not uh, interacting and it's not adding value, then what's that salt good for? What did Jesus say? Nothing, just 
throw it. In fact, I heard one preacher say, there's a lot of good-for-nothing Christians. If, if you're not salty trying to influence our culture, then Jesus said, you're good for nothing, to be thrown under the foot of men. Now, we understand that today, but they didn't just put it on the ground. They put it on their roofs, their houses, because their houses were different than ours. And usually that was the patio was upstairs and uh, or at the top of the house. And they'd pack that salt in there to help harden it and keep it from water soaking down in. And so in today, if you live in you know those ungodly places like Michigan, that's where my wife's from. That's why I say that. Uh, you, you can put salt on the roads, right? And, and in fact, when my in-laws moved from Michigan to Tucson, he, how old was the car he bought? Do you remember? I don't know. It, it, he bought a car that was like 15 years old. The people in Michigan, oh, you're crazy. Well, because in Michigan, cars are eaten alive by rust by then. So the, out here, we have cars that last a long time. In fact, Tucson's supposed to be the used car capital of the world. I don't know. But the cars last a long time out here. And so we would put ice, uh, salt on our sidewalk when it iced over, when we lived in places where they had snow and ice. I like not doing that, but we did. So as a believer, um, what you're supposed to do is not act like the world because then you've lost your saltiness. Salt adds value. It changes the connection. So if you're exactly like the world, you walk and talk and look and act and your values are the same, and then you tell people they need Jesus, they might look at you and say, why? You're just like me. And that's what the world does with a lot of churches. On the other hand, uh, you are, as a believer, not to look like the world. You're supposed to be a little different, but you're also supposed to be involved with people. So if you just blend into our culture, you've lost your saltiness. If you're not involved in our culture, you've lost your saltiness. And Jesus said, either way, you're good for nothing. But he doesn't just stop there. He says, you are the light of the world. The beginning of verse 14. In John 8, 13, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John 9, 5, Jesus said, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And now in, in uh, Matthew five fourteen, Jesus is saying, You are the light of the world. Now that's to his disciples, so that includes you and I today. He was speaking directly to them, but we apply it into our own lives. You are the light of the world. So believers are the light. The Christ followers are the light. Christians are the light. And Jesus was involved with people, many of whom were sinners. Now, culturally, in John 4, when the disciples came back and Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, the disciples thought there were several things wrong. What was one of them? Speaking to a woman. A, rab, a man, especially a rabbi, would not speak to a woman he wasn't related to. And in some cultures, that's still going on today. What was another reason? She was a Samaritan. She was a Samaritan woman. Two strikes against her in their culture and their understanding. 
There's a third reason. Jesus was alone. And, and he talked to this woman alone. Now, I think, guys, we need to be careful. I appreciate what Vice President Pence said, that he won't have dinner with a woman who's not related to him. Um, I feel that way. When I was a business manager, there were a couple of times that I had a, a business lunch that had to happen uh, in, to accomplish something. And like we were interviewing somebody, and I had lunch where a woman from work was with me at the lunch while we were interviewing somebody else who was also a woman. So I was there with two women I wasn't related to, but I, I always let Kathy know what was going on and why when that happened. But But Jesus realized reaching out to people was vitally important. That's why he came. And we are the light. You and I, you are the light. You have light. And when honest sinners sought Jesus' company, he received them openly. What do I mean by honest sinner? Um, I mean people who recognized their sinfulness and were seeking the Lord. The early part of the Beatitudes, those who would mourn over their sin, uh, those who were poor in spirit, they would come to the Lord and Jesus would welcome them and receive them. Jesus didn't say, clean up your act and then come here. He said, come here. Let me change your heart. Then you have the capacity to clean up your act. I was in a church once with a guy who was a, he loved the Lord, but he had a hard time loving people. And so somebody showed up in our church and he was wearing a leather vest, no shirt, leather vest, I think leather pants, and he had long dreadlocks and tattoos all over his arms. And this man in our church came walking up to me and he said, who is that? And I grabbed his arm and I said, that's my brother. Let me introduce you to him. And I took him up there and introduced him to my brother, which it was my brother, who's since cleaned up his act and he's actively involved in church now, but he was a mess for a while. And and I, so I introduced him and he, he did not want to shake my brother's hand, but he did. They did a study at a seminary And this professor assigned all these guys this task. They had to preach on the story of the Good Samaritan. And then they had to go and go to this certain room. And then on their way there, there was a guy who looked beaten and bloodied just off the side of the road. And they had somebody watching or videotaping, I don't remember, the seminarians as they walked by. And some of them did this. They walked by and they looked, and then they just kept going. And, and they, one of them even came and looked at the guy, and then he just kept going. And then when they showed up in class to teach, the whole class was there. And everyone thought they were going to be the ones speaking. And the professor walked in. He'd been the guy laying by the sidewalk. And the professor said, you can't teach God's word 
until you care about people. We have to care about their hearts, care about their hurts, care about their lives. Honest sinners are those who recognize their sin. They don't try and cover it up. And Jesus welcomed those people. And Jesus wants his disciples to continue that process. So he says in verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. His light shows strongly through his compassion and through the truth he clearly and boldly proclaimed. And so our light shows best when we are showing his love and sharing his truth. His light is shining through us. Now, when, where is light most needed? In the darkness. In the darkness. If we're not connecting with the world, okay, I'm not saying, listen, you know, you need to go out and go in and sit at a bar and uh, talk to people about Jesus. I'm, I'm not telling you to do that. But, but we need to go out where there's darkness and share the light of Christ. And if you're shining your light in here, then we get lots of light. But it's needed out there. Now, in our culture, we can have light almost any time we want. Even if all the lights in your house go out, what can you do? Turn on a flashlight. Light a candle. Turn on your phone. How many of you have a flashlight app on your phone? Yeah, you can do that. In fact, I was eating in a restaurant. My brother-in-law took me out to dinner with my two sisters, and I couldn't read the menu. The lighting was so so I clicked the flashlight on my phone because it was too dark to read the menu. (laughs) The food tasted good. I hope I got what I ordered. It was a little dark. Kind of tasted like pork, maybe. But Jesus said, listen, you don't light a light and then cover it. When we were little kids, we used to sing that song like, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. I think as adults, we need to sing that song every week. I need to let it shine. I need to be involved. I need to be engaged and involved so that there's contact so salt and light have benefit And I need to add value. I need to be out there. Our light shows up best when we are showing the kindness and grace of our Lord through our lives. In their culture, Jesus walked on the same paths as people. If Jesus was walking down the street, now it's different. If there's somebody who's really scary looking and you're alone, I mean, that's different. But, but if Jesus was walking down the street, he wouldn't see somebody and then get over on the other side. That's what some of the other rabbis did. But Jesus, who's called a rabbi, a teacher, Jesus talked to those people. He engaged and was involved with them. When the disciples came back, they were shocked that Jesus was talking to that woman at the well. And Jesus said, I've done exactly what the Father wanted, and it's met a need in my life. 
He said his meat, his food was to do the will of the Father. He never participated in their sinful behavior. Hebrews reminds us Jesus was separate from sinners. But what else does the Bible call Jesus in relation to sinners? A friend to sinners. He was separate from them, but he was a friend to sinners. He never participated in their sinful behavior, but he sought to connect with them, to engage with them, to bring them unto the Father. He continually showed them his love, and he was God the Son. I say was when he was on the earth. He still is, always has been, God the Son. And he was God the Son living in human flesh, and he still didn't put on airs about being superior to people. He connected with them, received them, showed them God's grace. In verse 14, it talks about a, a city set on a hill cannot be hid. And maybe that was, maybe he was preaching from one of the hills of Galilee and there was a, a city, Safed, about 2,650 feet above the, the sea level of Galilee. It was up on a hill there. And when it was lit up at night, you could see it from all around the lake. Have, have you seen where light reflects off water? And, and so even if you're all the way, and by the way, the Sea of Galilee is not huge. It's, it's little. Uh, those of you who are thinking Lake Michigan, think a lot smaller. Think Lake Patagonia or something. It, it was small enough they could run around it while Jesus was in a boat going across it. And so the, the Sea of Galilee, uh, they that light would shine and it would show off all the water all the way around. And so people from miles away could see that city set on a hill. And Jesus then said, let your light so shine before men. Now, when Matthew wrote this gospel, he did not break it into chapters and verses. He just wrote it out. Other than the Psalms, The Bible was not broken into chapters until around the 1300s. And it was actually in 1551 that the New Testament was first broken down into the verses that we have today. And 20 years later, the Old Testament was produced with the verse breakdowns, pretty similar to what we have today. Some translations actually break the verses in different places. Um, On Father's Day, I was preaching from... Is it 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 on Father's Day. And verses 6 and 7 in there, um, in the King James and New King James and some other translations, verse 6 is like this long and verse 7 is like that long. But some of the translations have verse 6 this long and verse 7 that long. So when I was reading, I said, look at verse 6. And I started reading and some people in here were using a different translation. They're looking and they're like, that's verse 7. Okay, I was not wrong because I'm dumb. The translation was different. I am dumb, but that's another subject. Uh, so Jesus said, let your light so shine. When, when um, Jesus was saying this and Matthew was writing this, these verses were not broken into separate verses. Matthew wrote on a scroll, and you'd read the whole scroll by rolling through it. And seeing scroll, and usually what they wrote was they'd write a strip, and so as you were scrolling and rolling, you could roll it one way, and then you could see a strip, and then roll and see the next strip, and roll kind of like what you do with your phone when you scan 
to swing over, you scan it to bring over the next screen or touch it or whatever if you're using a Kindle. But when Matthew wrote these words, they were all connected. And so chapter 5 was not separate from chapter 4. And verse 13 was not separate from verse 12. They were all connected. They just flowed into each other. So we talk about context, reading in context when we read the Scripture. What comes before and after and what does all the Scripture say? Look at the context of verse 13. Where do you think we would find the context of verse 13? The verses before and after. So let's just look at the verses before. Let's start at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hopefully this sounds a little familiar. We looked at this last Sunday morning. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So what Jesus, in this context, Jesus said, listen, it's going to be brutal. People are going to be violent toward you. They're going to be obnoxious toward you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to revile. They're going to say lies against you. And I've experienced that in my 20 years in Casa Grande. I've had different people say lies. The really strange thing is, even though it's completely untrue, some people, well, there must be some truth in it. Now, sometimes... People are just mean and obnoxious. That's what the Bible says. And so the sad thing is some people believe part of it, even though the whole thing's a lie. They'll believe part of it. But people will lie and say terrible things about you. They will persecute you. They will revile you. In the face of this staggering brutality, Jesus says, it's going to be terrible and you're going to suffer. So you're the salt of the earth and you let your light shine. And what we have a tendency to do when we're attacked, what do we do? We circle the wagons. What did the believers do after Jesus died? What did they do? What did they start doing at first? They were hiding in a locked room behind a locked door in fear. And we live in an evil culture. Some some parts of our culture are evil. But we're not supposed to live in fear. We're supposed to take our light out there. Let it shine. Hold it up. Walk out there among people. Don't cower in fear. Don't circle the wagons. Jesus said, it's going to be brutal. But I have a solution to the evils of our culture. You are the salt of the earth. You are are the light of the world. And that's how he does his work on planet Earth. So how are we supposed to respond? Like verse 12 says about this this difficulty, rejoice and be exceeding glad. You need to be joyful. You also need to be involved. Salt has to touch. Light has to be in the darkness. Be involved. You need to add value like salt is a preservative, like light shows how you can avoid problems and difficulties. We need to be joyful. We need to be involved. We need to add value. We need to show light. Kathy, uh, I let them know my message plans 
before I left, and she had a little clipping on her refrigerator from some newspaper, and it was Ask Carolyn, right? And, and a little article. And so this person writes in to Ask Carolyn and says, Hey, my neighbor's a Christian, and I walk with them, see her every day because we walk five times a day, and I just get really tired of all this God stuff because she's just talking about God all the time, and it's really annoying. And then Carolyn writes back and says, well, she has a right to talk about God, and you have a right to stop walking with her if it's really bothering you. But listen, if there's too much salt, it's awful. Don't do this, kids. And parents, if they do, give them a severe punishment. I took the lid off the salt shaker at our house. My brother always salted his salad. I thought it was strange. So I unscrewed the lid. And he went to salt his salad, and the whole salt shaker dumped out on his salad. So Dad made me eat it. Worst salad ever. Too much salt can poison. Too much salt is deadly. Too much light can blind you. So Jesus didn't say, get your thousand candle power light and just light them up. No, he said, you're the light. And he was not speaking in a culture that had spotlights or even flashlights. I had a flashlight that we could shine off the clouds. It was a um, one and a half million candle power flashlight. Take it to camp. Boom. Light it off the clouds. And it was cool because from a quarter mile away, I could light up the boys' tent. Just boom, the whole tent was lit up. That wasn't what they had. They had little lamps. They had lamps that had a little oil in it, a little wick. And as it burned, it would light up the area. They didn't have salt shakers where they could just pile on the salt and go to Walmart and buy them and big things like this. Uh, no, they, they had a little bit. And normally the way they put salt on, they'd take a pinch and then sprinkle it. And that's how they get the measure of salt. So if you're unloading on people because you're on fire for Jesus, you're not actually bringing them to the Father. You're pushing them away. I like what Carolyn said in response because the lady, that believer was not being obnoxious. She was just bringing God into the conversation. Like the lady would say, isn't it a beautiful day? She said, yes, I love God's creation. And she got offended because she kept saying God. So have discernment when you talk to people and interact in your community. You are not the Jesus person. There's only one Jesus. But you are a person that can help other people find Jesus. But don't overwhelm them. How many of you have ever gone to a used car lot and felt like you were under attack by a salesperson? Yeah, Kathy and I went to a dealership planning to buy a car. And the salesman was so obnoxious, we went and tried to find a different salesman. And then that salesman started yelling at the other salesman, those are my customers, those are mine. And and I said to the other guy, we don't want him. And he said, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. So I went in and found the manager in charge 
And I told them, my wife and I came here today planning to buy a car. But that salesman's so obnoxious, we're leaving. We're going to another dealership, and we'll buy a different car. And we did. Don't be that guy. Don't be that girl. Don't be that Christian that people cringe when you come into the room because you're going to press them in the corner about Jesus. Okay? That's not how Jesus ministered. Be salt. Be light. Not an avalanche of salt. Not a beam that's so bright it's going to blind them. Be salt. Be light. Be engaged and involved. Add value. Be joyful in spite of the difficulties of our culture. That's one way your light shines. People can see Christians going through difficult times and they still have the joy of Christ because your worst day with Christ is better than the best day without Christ. So you have Him. You are a missionary. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are the only salt and light for this dark world and for this generation. If people are going to get saved in this day, it's because God's plan A, His people, are the salt and light. So, are you salty? Are you lighty? Are are you lighting up the world? Are you trying to bring people to Christ? It's great that you memorize God's Word. I encourage that. We challenge you to do that every month. If you already know it, refresh yourself in it. If you don't know it, learn it and memorize a verse or two every month. Do more. Read God's Word. Study God's Word. But God didn't say, get in a close Christian cloister and get as close to me as you can get. Jesus said, go out. You are the salt. You are the light. We need to do that. We need to be that. There's a song in her hymnal 